Chapter Seventeen of A Candle for Our Lady by Regina Victoria Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seventeen. Richard Norris was as good as his word. Just before time to attend the king to mass, Joan had come, and he had shown the pair where they must stand in a passage of the chief close tennis court, fronting the street. And I pray you wait till the king's majesty comes out after the game. Probably I'll play him and so he flashed a quick smile so as to humour him but be brief as you can for his majesty has no care for long speeches unless sometimes his own majesty joan asked is it so you address the king ay and i must warn you he's insistent on the point oh i know tis new usage in england but the king will take offence if he's given a lesser title than those long borne by the emperor and the kings of france Richard glanced at the crystal hourglass on the console table. Now I must go. Remember, Jim, and Our Lady be with you. The door closed after him, and Joan, slipping the blue hood back from her dark curls, turned to Jim. What did he mean, Jim? That I am to begin by thanking the king for my release, and to ask for the return of Roland. Jim hoped the butterfly feeling in his stomach wasn't reflected in his face. Waiting in Dick Norris's little chamber soon became unbearable. They decided to make their way slowly through the privy gallery, trying to admire the fine wood carving and the tapestries from the looms of Italy, France, and Flanders, all glowing with a myriad rich tones in the light of wall brackets and daylight filtered through windows set high above. Armed now with a paper from Norris, they passed ushers, guards, and sentries unquestioned, and descended to the privy garden. There Jim halted a catch in his breath. What is it? Joan's eyes told how startled she was. Jim nodded toward a massive, dark-robed figure, then turned away. Cromwell, he whispered, and taking Joan's hand, he whisked her behind one of the tall, vine-clad columns that supported the long arbor. Did he see you? I don't know, but I dare not meet him. Joan ventured a peek. He's talking with a prelate, a little man with a rabbit-like face. It's likely Dr. Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Dick Norris had told Jim of the primate's influence in collaboration with Cromwell. Worse and worse, to be caught by those two. Where are they? Walking away. Which direction? Out toward the street. Jim groaned. Just the way we'll have to take. Look, said Joan, they couldn't know or suspect me. I'll follow them a ways, just to see where they go. Jim nodded. But return quickly, lest we become separated. He waited, sweating with nervousness. Suppose they, too, were waiting for the king to come to the tennis court. Suppose. But there was Joan, darting out of the stream of people along the garden path. He saw from the glow in her cheeks she was unusually excited. Come, it's all right, she said, taking his arm. I got so close I could hear them speak. What did they say? Jim asked as they went toward the tennis court. The little man, did you say he's the archbishop? He mentioned the council meeting. And the Lord Cromwell? Said they'd send the Norfolk knight to the tower, that he had a privy warrant prepared. Jim's heart sank heavily. Then just good as done, Joan, and I don't see what good our appeal can do. Joan shook him by the shoulder. For shame, brother. Sure you haven't come all this journey. I and suffered imprisonment yourself, only to grow faint-hearted now. Jim braced his shoulders and lifted his head. 
Nay, I'll see it through. And perhaps, he added to himself, perhaps Our Lady will deign to help me. Reaching the gallery of the empty court, they saw two figures below, one on either side of the dividing rope. One, tall and supple, clad in green satin, was Dick Norris. The other was much older, but with something of the huge boy about him still. His close-shaven or near-bald head and great red face topped a massive figure not diminished by the gold satin doublet, cut and slashed with white taffeta and the scarlet hose. Henry Tudor, King of the English. Jim and Joan stood with held breath and clasped hands, not understanding the play, just watching the ball as it bounded back and forth, and these two figures, so contrasted, wielding the little rackets. A great shout of laughter from the king announced that it was over. Evidently he was pleased with the result, for he kept slapping his gentleman on the back as they started slowly toward the exit. Jim saw Richard lift his head slightly, as a signal, and he pulled Joan after him down the stairs. They arrived at the bottom, breathless and wide-eyed, just as Norris handed the king his small crown jeweled hat. "'God's splendor!' bellowed King Harry as the pair catapulted across his path. "'What have we here?' Two of your younger subjects, sire,' said Richard, "'come to admire your majesty's game.' "'And to thank your—your your majesty—' Jim struggled with the parched feeling in his throat, the hammering of his head— as he knelt before this great hulk of a man with the little twinkling eyes and the small pursed mouth. "'Thank me? For what? Showing you a good game, boy. Why, you should have seen me when I was Dick Norris's age, before I got this cursed swelling in my leg. I was a match for any of em tennis, wrestling, swimming, riding, what you will. Ah, but time, time, and age are villains.' Norris interrupted. "'Sire, what mean you to speak of age?' You are in the prime. Nay, nay, friend Dick, flatter me not. I am turned eight and forty this June. Well, you know. Already he had started on, and Jem saw his chance slipping. Sire! It was Joan's voice, high and girlish. She swept round before the king, almost dragging Jim with her. My brother is in debt to you. He wanted to thank you for his freedom. Freedom? Oh! A momentary frown drew the flaring sandy brows together. What freedom, boy? Who are you? A countryman by your speech. I, sire. Suddenly a great stream of courage flowed into Jim. He spoke up crisp and clear. I'm James Reynolds, Iworth in Bedford, and I was cast into the gatehouse yonder merely for bearing a petition to your majesty. His grace of Norfolk brought the injustice to your majesty's notice. I thank you, therefore, for my freedom and would beg you also to order return of my horse. Freedom? Petition? Return of a horse? God's thunder! What's all this? Dick Norris, you're party to this somehow. And the little blue eyes jabbed the young courtier, so as to make Jim tremble for his friend. But Richard Norris was equal to the challenge. Tis true, sire. The lad's horse, a fine black gelding, was taken on his commitment and hasn't been returned. Henry waved a broad, heavy hand. Well, well, let the beast be released to his owner. Tis something queer, he added suspiciously. How a lad of your station comes by such an animal. Twas a present, sire, from Sir William Waltham of Waltham Manor, Norfolk, on whose behalf I came hither to petition. Jim was out of breath, and he stood with heavily beating heart, watching the effect of his words on the king. 
So that's the way of it. Henry's scowl was deep now, his red, hairy hand on which burned a great ruby, robbed, Jim had been told, from St. Thomas Becket's shrine at Canterbury, stroked his heavy square chin. I might have guessed politics lay at the bottom of this. Again he darted a suspicious glance at the unruffled young courtier. Well, Henry bellowed so suddenly that Joan jumped. Where's your petition, boy? Twas, twas taken, sire. Taken? By whom? By the Lord Cromwell. Jim gulped. The questions came so fast. I, I thought he meant to present it to your majesty. Now Richard Norris ventured to explain. Sire, twas during your absence. No doubt the vicar general hasn't had time to present it. Fetch him, Henry commanded, beginning to fume like a restive bull. At once, sire. And Richard threw Jim a heartening glance before he melted into the dark passage. Henry meant to get to the bottom of this. He turned meanwhile to Jim. Tell me, how has Waltham gotten broiled? He was unjustly denounced to your grace's council. Majesty, lad, majesty! If the German emperor and the most Christian king are addressed as majesty, shall the king of the English be less? Well, why was the Norfolk knight denounced? Because, sire, he refused to pay exorbitant damages demanded by a gentleman of Walsingham, damages to the gentleman's newly acquired property on the site of Our Lady's shrine. So Waltham's people rioted and damaged the fellow's property? That's breaking the king's peace, and smacks of sedition. Henry broke off, for the sinister figure in dark furred robe and flat cap now approached, followed by Norris. Your majesty sent for me? Here again was the silken voice Jim too well remembered. Already the beady eyes that fastened on him and accurately pigeonholed him, Jim was sure. Thomas Cromwell was not the man to forget anyone. Aye, Tom, this country lad brought a petition concerning Waltham, the Norfolk knight. He gave it to you? Aye, sire. Well, where is it? Really, sire, it seemed too inconsequential for your majesty's notice. Henry banged his fist on his other palm. By the splendor of God, I'll be the judge of its consequence. Yes, sire, of course, but now the council. The council will wait. Till midnight, if I say so. Get that petition, Tom, and let's have no more dawdling. I haven't breakfasted that I might receive our lord this morning. Away with you. And he waved the vicar general out, as if he were no more than a taverner, which, in truth, he once was. Obsequiously, Cromwell retired, though Jim didn't miss the venom in his glance. He saw now that even he was not too small a bird for Cromwell's skewers. There was no bird too small. Henry continued to growl. So the good people of Walsingham resist what we in our fatherly love think best for the state of religion? They rage and riot, forsooth, because a few crypts and bones and jeweled baubles are swept away? Your Majesty was added to those baubles. It was Joan who spoke up without a tremor. Henry swung round, as if to strike her, yet something stayed him. Joan finished much of what she had meant to say, and made a winter journey to Our Lady. The red hands clenched to anger. Be still. What does a country chit know more of religion than I, than the scholars, the theologians of Europe? We're simple folk, sire. We know only that we love God and those who are near to him. Above all, his blessed mother. Think you I pay her less court because we've cast out the trappings? 
Is the queen of heaven the poor for the few trinkets swept from the altars? What need has she of these things? None, sire, Jem spoke up finally, surprised by his own calmness. But we need her. And how can this land of hers, her dowry, prosper if we refuse the public homage all our Christian forebears have reverently paid her? If we despoil and destroy and hand over to grasping men these signs and emblems of our father's love, are we not the same in the sight of God, our Lady, and the saints, as in that of men, were we to rob the images and tombstones of our natural parents? The blue eyes under the flaring brows regarded him half in anger, half in admiration. God's thunder, a yeoman lad turned preacher, who taught you? My yeoman father, sire, my grandmother, and a plain good priest, yonder at Iworth. But I have no learning. I come only to plead for Our Lady and for our friend. But now Cromwell returned with a parchment, and hope leaped up in Jim as Henry took the scroll. As you see, sire, said Cromwell, while the king scanned it, this is of no moment, being merely the defense set forth by the knight's tenants. They are witnesses, my lord, the king returned. They swear Sir William strove to quell the riot, and in fact did so. That's true, Jim cried. I saw it myself. But, said Cromwell, ignoring Jim, all these people are interested parties, predisposed in favor of the accused. All are papists, sire, men who would restore the bad old ways of Romish domination, and subordinate the crown to the crozier, sire. He pressed his advantage skillfully. Waltham is a wealthy man, and without heirs. Ha! Is it so? Your majesty follows my thoughts? With the emperor and the king of France intriguing against you, you have need of all the treasure available. And he finished with a whisper in the king's ear. With dawning horror, Jem saw what lure Cromwell spread before the king, and the covetous gleam in Henry's eye. If Sir William were condemned, his estates were forfeit to the crown another way to replenish the diminishing royal coffers. Confiscation, said Henry, musing. There are scarce grounds. Act of attainder, sire. Parliament will ratify it. From his ample pocket, Cromwell brought forth a paper and handed it to the king. Sign, sire, and it's done. Jim held his breath as the king snatched the paper. He could guess what it was, a privy warrant for Sir William's committal to the tower. So this was the end of his mission, the end for Sir William, too, and for all that was loyal and good and true in the land so long our lady's dowry. There was no misreading the triumph in Cromwell's steely eyes, nor the answering one in the gross, bloated face of the king. Craft and corruption had won. Jim's heart sank like a stone. For all the gentle warmth of the sunlit day, he shivered as with a cold wind blowing. Turning away, he dragged blindly to the exit tunnel. Sign, sire, Cromwell coaxed in his silky voice. End of chapter 17